0: Well, we're going to, next few weeks here are going to look uh, a little bit different. We're nearing the end of, of our time in Mark. And, uh, and so we'll be in it, obviously, this week in Mark 12. Next week, let me really encourage you, uh, next week, I'm really excited. We're going to have uh, a man by the name of Hamisi, who is from Kenya, works with Spread Truth. Uh, in Kenya. He's going to be here next week and he's going to be preaching uh, uh, at our service next Sunday. Uh, He and Jerry McCorkle is the director of Spread Truth here uh, as well. And then uh, I believe even a a government official from Kenya are going to be here with us next Sunday. So we're going to talk with them. We'll do some some time just interviewing them and and hearing what God is doing in the country of Kenya. Uh, And then Hamisi is going to uh, open up God's word and and preach to us. And so uh, really excited for next week. So make sure you're here uh, with us on that Sunday. Uh, so we're going to take a break from Mark next week, and then we'll come back to it uh, the week after. Uh, but then we are taking a, a, good, a good break as we jump into Advent here, which begins in just three weeks. Uh, and so we'll be in Advent for uh, about four weeks, and then we got Christmas and New Year's and all that. Hard to believe we're in that holiday season now. Uh, but looking forward to uh, opening up God's Word here today as we journey through Mark uh, chapter 12, uh, and then as we kind of just see what the next few weeks look like as we uh, journey into the holiday season and as we hear also what, what God is doing in other parts of, of the world. pray that our, our vision is, is, is broadened even more to see God as a global, global God. Bear with me with my voice, probably already noticing. Uh, I decided this morning that it just wanted to go. Uh, and so I was I think okay yesterday. I was screaming a lot at my son's basketball games and my daughter's basketball games yesterday, so that probably is the reason. Uh, but it's there. I just did Sunday seminar, made it through fine uh, like this, but just bear with me. I feel great uh, just you can't hear me really well. And I was singing those bass notes really well uh, in the songs this morning. Uh, but as we jump into Mark 12 here uh, this morning, when you picture royalty, uh, what comes to your mind? What do you see? Like what do you, what do you sense when, when you're picturing royalty? Uh, most likely you're picturing power, right? You're seeing someone with power and prestige, right? You're seeing wealth. You're seeing someone that has influence, those are some of the things that probably come to your mind when you think of royalty. One of the most recognizable royal families today that we're going to be most likely familiar with is there are the royals in England. I'm not sure how many of you watched the, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth and, and then the recognition of Charles as king. His coronation doesn't come until May of next year, which I'm sure is going to be quite the spectacle. But, but even in the days following the queen's death, Whenever King Charles would would walk into a room, it's just interesting to kind of watch how people interact with royalty, right? When he would walk into a room, everything stopped. All eyes were on him. If he needed anything, he only had to, to merely mention it and whatever he was asking for would be there in a second. Pretty much everything just kind of seemed to belong to him. At one point, he, he needed to, I remember watching him, he was signing some documents or went to a room to sign some documents and there was no pen there and, and, or one of the pens that he was using wasn't working. So he just merely, he just went like this. And immediately someone just put a pen in his, in his hand, right? Like that's, that's power, right? That's prestige. Right? Images like that are probably what typically come to mind when we think of royalty, when we think of a king. But as we've journeyed through Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus revealed as a different kind of king, a different kind of king who's ushering in a a different kind of of kingdom. God's kingdom is is different than the kingdom of this world, and Jesus is different than any earthly type of king that we're ever going to experience. So so thinking through that, what have we picked up on? We're in chapter 12 now of Mark, so we've been in this, this gospel for a while now. What have we picked up on throughout this gospel that sets God's kingdom apart from the world's kingdom. There's a few things that should come to our mind. The kingdom of, of this world craves power. The kingdom of this world craves success and control. That's what, that's, those are markers of the world's kingdom. Power, control, success. And, we, and we've seen it as we've even walked through the last couple chapters. So the disciples wrestling with that. They want that type of kingdom. They want that type of power. In Mark 10, James and John, they come to Jesus and they come to him with a, with a question. They want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Right? They want to sit at his right and left hand in his coming kingdom. But they want to rule. They want authority. They want recognition. They want power. What's Jesus say to them? He shows them the difference, James and John, between what you're thinking of as the world's kingdom and what my kingdom is going to be. It says in Mark 10, 42 through 44, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. And they're great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. There's a difference he's making with them of here's my kingdom versus what you're thinking of in the world's kingdom. But we also seen as we walk through Mark that the, the kingdom of this world craves earthly comfort and, and wealth. So earlier in Mark 10, we, we read of a, a rich young man that came to Jesus asking him, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That was the question he he posed. But what he was asking is, what do, I, what do I need to do to be part of your kingdom? I want to be part of your kingdom. He he says he's he's thinking that he's he's done everything that he needs to do. Right? He's thinking, I've done everything I need to do in my mind. I've kept the law, I've been a good religious person. He he was a man who had influence and, and great wealth, right? Like so externally, this guy has it all together, right? He's In today's world, he'd be the one with the book deals, and he'd be the one invited to speak at all the conferences. Like, this guy has it all together. What's the secret to your success? And so he's put together, and so he wants to know. He comes to Jesus saying, listen, I I don't think I'm missing anything, but if I am, what am I missing because I want to be part of this this kingdom that you're talking about? And so, again, what's Jesus' response? He's going to show him the difference between what his view of the kingdom actually is. In Mark 10, 21, Jesus looks at this young man and says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Well, if you remember from a few weeks ago, what happens? This young man, this rich young man who comes to Jesus with such swagger and confidence, right, now now leaves after Jesus says that, sorrowful, with his head down, because he didn't want to give up his wealth his comfort. He wanted to control that in his kingdom. He just wanted to add on to what he already thought the kingdom was. We've seen as we've journeyed through Mark that the kingdom of this world craves recognition. It craves influence. So in Mark 9, as Jesus and his disciples are making their way to Capernaum, Jesus asked them once they get there, hey, what were you guys talking about? I heard you guys discussing something. What were you talking about along the way? And Mark 9 says that they were all really quiet. They're all really quiet because they knew, man, we were just arguing and fighting with one another about which one of us is going to be the greatest. Which one of us is going to have the most influence? Which one of us is going to have the most recognition? Right? We want to walk into a room and everybody know who I am. That's what they're arguing about. And so what's Jesus' response to them? Well, you have guessed it, right? He shows them the difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. In Mark 9, 35-37, he says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put it in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see, the, the kingdom of God is not about you achieving power and recognition and influence and wealth and Control, that's what's been drilled into our minds from birth by the world. That's what the world is discipling us in, right? That's the kingdom that we want. That's the world that we want. Power, influence, wealth, control. You see, if you're a part of the world's kingdom, you you have to have those things. Those are the things I have to have, and I have to have more of them. It's never enough, right? You're desperate for them. Every decision that you make is made on the basis of gaining more power and more control. More success, more wealth, more recognition, more influence. That is is the mantra of the kingdom of this world. Get more of this. It dominates your life. It dominates your thinking. It's going to dominate your decision making. And in the end, that pursuit of, of the world's kingdom and the world's treasures, that which you think will set you free and bring you joy, actually enslaves and destroys you. Here's why that is. Here's a question for you. How much wealth is enough to finally make you happy, to finally satisfy you? What's enough? What's the, what's the Powerball lottery up to right now? It's like $1.6 billion or something right now. I don't know some, you may want to have no idea, but that's what I was hearing just a day or two ago. It's up to $1.6 billion. I came across an article like yesterday or day before. Of, there's, I guess there's an option with, with the lottery where you can take like the cash out payment or something like that where you just get cash. All in they said, most people take that. So there, the article was like, how much would you actually take home after paying taxes? And, and so I think the cash payout was somewhere around like 700, 800 million, right? Now, they, they whittled it down Say, okay, here's how much taxes go here and here and here. So in the end, as I was reading this article, they said, you'd probably walk away with about 400 million. You don't know what my first thought was? Only 400 million that was my first thought. Like, man, you'd only get $400 million. That was a heart check for me in that moment. Like, that it was like, because my mom like, well, that's not enough. I want, I want the $800 million. I want the $1.6 billion. I don't take any of that for me. See, that's, that's, that's when we pursue the kingdom of this world. It's never enough. How much do we need to finally be happy? How much control and power and influence do you finally need to feel like you're enough? How much success do you need to achieve and finally feel complete and accomplished? It's never enough, right? So, so we run the race, the treadmill. Got to get more, got to get more, got to get more. And story after story after story could be told of people in the world that, that we would look at and say, they've reached it. They've reached that, that pinnacle of success and power and wealth. Only to hear from them time and time again, them saying, yeah, it'd be nice to have a little bit more. It's not enough. I've shared this story with us before, but it's just so good as we think through this. But back in 2005, Tom Brady, he sat down for an interview with 60 Minutes. And in 2005, Brady was about 27 years old, and he already had three Super Bowl rings to his name at 27. And in the interview was sitting down with him and asked him, okay, hey, uh, Tom, which of your three rings is your favorite? And, and his response was, the next one, the next one. That's a telling answer, isn't it, right? You've got three at 27, but he's like, the next one, the next one's going to be my favorite. Toward the end of that interview, Brady's asked about this this ride that he's been on, right? This, This just upward trajectory where he's just winning and just dominating everything and everyone in the game of football. And he's asked by the interviewer, he's asked like, so what have you learned? What are you learning through all of this? And his response to this interview, as I've shared before, is is just so interesting. But he says, says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life at 27. And me, I'm thinking, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that's cracked up to be. I mean, I've, I've done it. He's like, I'm 27. And he's thinking, what else is there for me? Right? The interviewer then asked him like, "What's the answer?" And, and Bray just kind of looked at him and says, "I wish I knew. I wish I knew." See, this is the tangled web that we find ourselves in when we chase after the kingdom of this world. It's never enough. And, and it's never enough because it was never meant to be. It was never created to be enough for you. It wasn't created to, to satisfy you or bring that ultimate meaning and purpose and joy to our lives. That wasn't its intention. God creates to stir our minds and our hearts and our affections upward to the creator, not to have our affections terminate on creation. And so if this is the reality in which we find ourselves in as human beings in this this world where nothing in this world, nothing in the kingdom of this world can satisfy you, then it can only mean one thing. As C.S. Lewis once said, it can only mean that you were made for another world. See, we were made to find joy and peace and life in a different kingdom under a different king. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians that our our citizenship is in heaven. Apostle Peter, in his first letter, calls followers of Jesus sojourners and exiles. He's saying, we were made for another world. We're sojourners. We're exiles here. And so the question then becomes, then how do we live as citizens of heaven with, with Christ as king while still recognizing at the same time, that we are living in a, a broken world with a broken system, with, with varying levels of, of authority and governance that are over us, much of which are, are corrupt and deeply flawed. And not only is our own government here in America flawed in so many ways, but we have several international students that are part of our, our church here that are coming from other parts of the world where, where corruption and government to them reaches a whole new level. And, and so the question, like, are we to be revolutionaries? As Christians, are we called to tear down the system? Are, are, we, are we supposed to tear down the whole system of government? Are we to be anarchists? Do we, do we rebel? What, what's, it, what's resistance look like? Or do we, do we, on the other side, do we just acquiesce, just give in? Or maybe, maybe like some, some cults have done, they, they build the compound, right? Let's, let's separate. We're creating our own little world here, and we're going to build a big wall to keep everyone who isn't like us out. What do we do as citizens of heaven, living in a broken world, under a governmental system here? All right, see, Jesus is going to, in this interaction with the Pharisees and the Herodians, is really with one simple sentence, reveal what, what citizens of heaven, what it looks like, what the kingdom of God looks like, and how we engage with, with earthly government, especially even corrupt leaders in the world. See, he's shaping and ordering and prioritizing here in these few verses, what our allegiances are in life, what they look like. So as we journey through these these verses, so my my outline's a little different uh, this this week as is, is, as it is typically. Usually I have like kind of bullet points we kind of walk through. Uh, today's gonna be more of just. Let's let's just unpack the, the text. What's, what's happening? What's talking? What, what's going on here? What's the historical background? What's the context? We want to understand the question and Jesus' response. We want to just get a, a, a feel of what is going on here. And then really my, my points will be at the end with just how do we apply it? How do we live this? What are the takeaways now then as citizens of heaven living underneath governmental systems and structures in our, in our world. What's that look like? And so that's kind of the, the goal this morning. So we see in the first couple of verses there, in verses 13 and 14, that we no, nothing new that we haven't already seen over the past several weeks. What we're seeing in those verses, religious leaders, this religious governing body, they're, they're trying to find a way to trap Jesus. They're trying to find a way to trip him up so he'll say something heretical or blasphemous that they define it that way, that they can destroy him. That, that's always their aim in everything that they, that they do. That's what we've seen. That's what we're going to continue to see through the remainder of chapter 12. They, they keep seeing the, sending these, these delegations, these delegates, these religious leaders, these little pockets of people to Jesus with this plan to try and, well, say this, ask him this now, and we'll see if we can mess him up here. And so here in verse 13, we see a group of Pharisees, and it says Herodians are banding together. And so the fact that, that these two groups of people, the Pharisees and Herodians, the fact that they're working together here gives evidence of how much Jesus has just rattled them. See, The Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't have been more different. right? They're, they're, on, they're on different sides politically of the political aisle. Right? And, and they're going to now approach Jesus working together with a political question that they think, they think this question is going to trip them up. This question is going to get him. He has to answer this question, either yes or no, and both answers are going to destroy him. See, see, they're coming to him with this question where they think it's a simple yes or no question because if you remember from a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 11, the, the leaders, the Sanhedrin, are coming to Jesus and they're asking a question regarding his authority. All right, so he had, in the days prior, in the day prior, he had overturned the money changers' tables. He had driven people out of the, of, of the temple grounds, and so they're coming to him saying, who, who, who gives you this authority to do this? And, and if you remember from, from Mark 11, Jesus refuses to answer them or he, he answers their question with a question as well. And so he says to them, well, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Basically, he, he pulls them aside and says, okay, John the Baptist, where did, where did he come from? Where was his authority? What, what gave him the power to do what he did? Was it from God or from man? And, and so they, they band together, they get together, and they say, well, if we say it's from God, the people are going to say, why didn't we listen to John then? Because they rejected John. They stood idly by when John was executed. But then at the same time, they're like, but if we say it's from man, then, then the people are going to come after us because they're going to say, well, why, why, like, why didn't you follow, like, why We held him up to be a messenger from, from God. So, so Jesus asked them that question. They come back to him saying, well, we don't, we don't know. And so Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer your question either because you're not interested in actually knowing truth. You're just trying to, to trip me up, so I'm not going to answer your question. And so they, they leave frustrated like he gave us this non-answer. But, of course, if you hear last week, he, he, he tells this parable where he's talking about their, 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 their wickedness and they're perceiving that this is about them. So they're ticked off at Jesus because they, they didn't get an answer from him there regarding his authority. So they come now to him say, thinking, we've got him. We've got him. He has to answer this. He can't be evasive. He has to say yes or no to this question. And either answer, yes or no, will condemn him. So what's the question that they ask in verse 14? They come to him and say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So with that question, they're they're really asking one of two things regarding the politics of Jesus. They want to know of Jesus, are you a revolutionary or are you a traitor and a fraud? That's really what they're wanting to know. They're wanting him to admit that he's a revolutionary or that he's a traitor and a fraud to the Jewish people. That's what they're trying to trap him in because either one of those answers, they're they're like, we got him. This is going to destroy him. So it's important for us to understand the history, the background, and the context here so we understand what they're asking, why they're asking, what they're asking. So this isn't a question that they're asking regarding just simply paying taxes in general. They're they're referring in their question to him regarding a a very specific tax. And and we know that they're asking about a specific tax because, because of how Jesus responds to them in verse 15. Jesus asked for a denarius in verse 15. Under Roman rule... Just like, just like we have today, there were a number of taxes that, that the people had on all sorts of goods and services, and like today, they, they paid their taxes. They may not have liked it, just like many taxes today we don't like to have to pay, but that's what citizens of a nation does. We, we pay our taxes. And so they had to pay a, a certain amount of taxes that funded all sorts of services and goods. But that's, that's not what's under the microscope here with their question. They want to know about a specific tax that was paid with a denarius, that, that Jesus' response to that would reveal his political side. What side do you land on, Jesus? See, the Pharisees or the Herodians knew that whatever he would say, they could both use it to bring him down. So the tax that they're asking about was, was something called a head tax, an imperial Roman tax. Basically, what this was was a, a tax for existing. It was a tax that the Jewish people hated because this tax was, was a reminder to them of their subjugation to, to Roman rule. It wasn't a high-level tax. It wasn't a lot of money. It was, it was kind of like a, a day's wage for like low-income people. It wasn't a lot. It's what this tax symbolized. It symbolized that they were under Roman rule. And so this tax was paid using one denarius, as I said, about a day's wage. This tax in, itself wasn't even that old. It, it was instituted about 25 years uh, prior to Jesus being asked about it. And as soon as about 25 years prior, when it was first instituted by Roman government, as soon as it was, it was instituted, it triggered this this revolt that was led by a man named Judas the Galilean. Judas the Galilean, as soon as this tax was levied, he, he stepped up and said, no, we're not paying it. We're not paying it. And he called on the Jewish people to resist, not pay this tax. He called on the Jewish people to re- refuse Rome's rule. He then went into, this sounds maybe a little familiar, he went into the temple and he cleansed it. He drove out all the Gentiles and all the foreigners, all the Romans, all of them were driven out of the temple grounds. Only the Jewish people could remain. He, he cleansed the temple in his mind because... He thought anybody that was not Jewish, they're defiling this, meaning you're not Jewish, and this is, this is God's kingdom. This is God's place right here. And so Judas the Galilean sought to, to lead this revolution and usher in the, the kingdom of God by overthrowing Rome and establishing God's rules he thought it was to be. It, it should be then no surprise to us that as soon as Rome caught word of this, he was attacked, he was caught, and Judas was quickly executed. That revolution was squashed very quickly. So here we are now, 25 years later. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. Just a few days earlier, he had cleansed the temple. Now, he did so differently than Judas. Jesus wasn't driving out the Gentiles, but he was driving out the ones who were taking advantage of them. He was driving out the ones who were hindering them from seeing and responding to God. And so these leaders are are remembering the history of what had just taken place just a a quarter century before with, with Judas he was, and he was killed because of this revolution that he was seeking to lead against Rome because of this tax. Judas was killed. Is Jesus, there thinking, leading a similar revolution? Right? So they're coming. What are your politics, Jesus? What do you think about this head tax? Should we pay it or should we not? Where do you stand as you're leading this movement, as you're talking about the kingdom of God? There's a reason why it was the Pharisees and the Herodians that came together asking this question. Because both of them want different answers to the question. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to say yes, pay the tax. Because then they could discredit Jesus before all the Jewish people as a traitor and a fraud. See, this, this Jesus here following, he's a friend of, of Rome. He's a friend of this oppressive government. Right? See, in their minds, the Pharisees thought, get Jesus to say yes, and he's gonna lose all the people and his movement's gonna be done. The Herodians, though, they wanted Jesus to say, No, don't pay the tax. See, the the Herodians were were Jewish sympathizers of Rome. And so getting Jesus to say no would mean they could then now go accuse Jesus of being an insurrectionist. And they knew that the same fate that that happened to Judas the Galilean, when he led an insurrection against Rome, they knew what would happen to Jesus then. He'd be squashed, quickly killed. You see, these leaders think they've, they've got him trapped. They've got him. This is it. This is how we can destroy him. Jesus, do we pay this tribute to Caesar or do we revolt? Yes or no, Jesus. Give us an answer right now, Jesus. What, is, what, what does our relationship to the state look like? But again, as you heard read, Jesus doesn't give a simple yes or no answer, does he? What do we see in verses 15 through 17? Jesus says, why put me to the test? He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, "It's Caesar's." And Jesus said to them, "Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." And they marvelled at him. See, Jesus doesn't give them that, that simple yes/no answer that they are wanting. He's the most frustrating person to try and pin down. He gives a he gives a balanced answer of of sorts, a, a both and kind of answer. And, and in this simple response, he, he says much about our relationship, not only to the state, but, but really what our relationship looks like to God. So, so he answers the question that's before us this morning. How do we live as citizens of heaven while still recognizing that we're also living in a broken world with a broken system over us with varying levels of broken and corrupt authority and governance? And so, so Jesus answers the question by saying, okay, bring me, bring me a denarius and ask As he holds it up, he says, whose image is on this coin? What's it say on this coin? At which they respond, Caesar, which is what it was. This is a picture of a denarius. We have them in in museums. You can go look at a a denarius. You can see this is the front side and the back side of of what this coin looked like. So on one side of the coin, you can clearly see it's an image of, of Tiberius Caesar with an inscription around it that says this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus. On the other side was the inscription saying pontifex maxim, or it meant chief priest. And so here's what that coin represented. Represent Caesar as God. Represent Caesar as high priest. And so you can see why the Jewish people, like, we don't, we don't like this. Like, he is not our high priest, our chief priest. He is not God. And so you can see why they rejected so strongly to this. But Jesus holds up this coin with Caesar's own head on it and says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and then render to God the things that are God's. Here's what he's saying as he holds his coin in front of them. He says, this is Caesar's money. Literally. It has his image on it. It was understood actually at that time that the ancient coins belonged to the person whose image and inscription were on them. It was Caesar's money, literally. these, These coins, this denarius was minted out of his own personal wealth. So Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and Herodians, pay back, which is what the word render means. Pay back what is his to begin with and pay back what belongs to God and what bears his image. See, this is where we get, begin to get to the heart of the text. Right? See, Tim Keller says it like this in regard to this interaction between the Pharisees and the Herodians. He says this is really the, the first theory of limited government in the history of the world. And, and the reason he makes that statement is that up to this point, As you see on one side of that coin, it it, it said, you know, Caesar, he's God of Augustus, right? right? So this is understanding at that time that those in authority, kings and rulers and governors, they all believed that they had this divine authority that could not be questioned by anyone. That their rule and their reign was supreme and deserving of of total allegiance. Kings believed that they were not only chosen by, by the gods, but that they themselves were gods, Therefore, they believed that they had this absolute authority over all people. And so what Jesus is saying in his statement, in his response to them, when he says, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, he's saying this, don't give any earthly government that type of authority that they're asking for, that they're thinking that they're owed. Pay back Caesar his money because it's, it's, his image is on it, but don't give him your full allegiance. Don't give, don't give him your whole life because... That belongs to God. You know why? Because you bear his image. See, even, though, even the language here is, is really important that Jesus uses. It's really important for us to key in on and understand the words that are being used. In verse 14, the religious leaders ask if they should pay, quote-unquote, taxes. The, the word pay in the Greek is the word didomi, which means to offer as a gift or a tribute. So what they're asking Jesus is, is are we to give tribute? Are we to, to offer as a gift to Caesar what he's asking for, right? Him thinking he's God, him asking all things of us. Are we to give this back to him? But Jesus says in verse 17, he doesn't use the word didomi. He uses the word render to Caesar. It's the Greek word apodidomi, which means to pay back or just to give back what belongs already to someone else. And so even in Jesus' usage of the words, he's saying, no, you don't offer tribute or allegiance or your soul to any earthly government. Give back to them what belongs to them, but your heart and your soul and your life, your allegiance, it belongs to God because you bear his image. You cannot give Caesar what he ultimately wants. No, he ultimately wants your life, because, but you can't give that to him because that belongs to God. His image is stamped on you. You see, Judas of Galilee sought to bring a revolution in that he wanted to overthrow Rome, but Jesus of Galilee brought a revolution as well, but a different kind of revolution. Again, his kingdom is a different kingdom. He's a different kind of king. Notice how even Mark sets this up for us that shows us this difference between Jesus and earthly kings through sort of this interaction with these religious leaders. He's, he says, Mark is, is point, painting this picture If you have two kings contrasted here and, and, and they couldn't be more different from one another. On one hand, you have Caesar, a man who is literally minting his own money with his image on it. And then he says, but on the other hand, you have Jesus who who didn't pull a denarius out of his own pocket. He had to to ask for one. As one author puts it here, you have a king without a quarter versus a king with all the quarters. That's the difference between Jesus and the kingdom of this world. See, what Jesus is doing here is saying, I'm a whole different kind of king. My kingdom is a whole different kind of kingdom. What, What the people wanted was Jesus to be a better kind of Caesar, a better kind of leader, Lead in a better way than what we've experienced already on this earth. That's the kind of revolution that that the people wanted from the Messiah. Just give us someone better. And Jesus is completely flipping upside down their concept of kingship and revolution. In a day when kings were wealthy beyond measure, Jesus was poor. Where kings commanded others to fight for their kingdom and their throne, Jesus picked up his own cross and fought the battle of sin himself. Where earthly kings find joy and peace and their comfort and riches, Jesus said true freedom and peace is found through suffering and dying to yourself. Where earthly kings demand attention because they're the king and they demand others to serve them, Jesus said, no, I came to serve. Throughout history, men and kings have fought one another, hoping that their reign and their victory over one another will bring long-lasting peace and dominion on earth, but all we ever see is that nothing really changes, just the person who's sitting on the throne. What humanity needed wasn't just another earthly king to sit on the throne for a season. It needed a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom that is everlasting. Jesus says here, be obedient and respectful to those placed in authority. Yes, pay back what belongs to him, but don't put your hope there. In fact, know that your greatest allegiance is to a different king, a heavenly one where true justice and peace and mercy and joy is found. Jesus' kingship, his coronation wasn't, wasn't attained when he entered into Jerusalem to the applause of the people. No, his coronation as king was attained through his suffering and his execution. Jesus is the crucified king. He doesn't, he doesn't have to demand power and authority because I'm the king. You've got to obey me. No, Jesus says all authority has been given to me. See, the world's kingdom is all about, all about attaining power and control, getting more of it, but the kingdom of God is all about serving and giving and loving and losing yourself, and in that, that begins to change the world. See, this is who we are called to be as followers of Jesus, as citizens of of the heavenly kingdom, and by living in full allegiance to Christ, who is our king, we actually begin to see the world change around us, this is what the church is to be, that light in the midst of darkness. We don't want to look like the world and then hope the world changes. No, we live counterculturally. We live differently, under a different king, and because of that, the world begins to change. See, the world doesn't change when we submit to the world and its way of life. It changes when the church lives in glad submission to King Jesus. And so, as we, as we begin to wrap up here this morning, what, what do we take away from this? What do we take away from this as Americans? What do we take away from this for internationals that are part of us, for the, the, the Chinese that are meeting just down the, the hallway here, right, who, who have a different form, a different view of even what government looks like in their lives? What do we do here as citizens of heaven? How do we live as, as, as citizens of heaven underneath sometimes corrupt and flawed, broken systems of government? So wherever you call home, these, these few principles here as I, as I wrap up here, I, I believe apply across the board. Because again, the, the kingdom of God is a, is a global kingdom of all nations. And so first thing we see here in, in, in Jesus' interaction here is that Jesus does legitimize human government. He legitimizes human government. So meaning this, that God has ordained the, the family and the church and the government as authoritative institutions in society to bring about good in the world. That's the purpose of them. Now, each of these institutions is flawed because they involve human beings, but when they're led by God's grace and under the direction and guidance of, of, of his spirit, they, they do bring about great good in culture and in society. Therefore, government, as we look at it, as ordained by God, has then the right to levy taxes. They have the right to institute laws, taxes that we must pay, and laws that we have a responsibility to obey. Richard Halverson, he was the chaplain of the United States Senate from 1981 to 19 ninety five he once said something very very wise. He said this. He says, to be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state, just as men because of sin have abused and misused every other institution in history, including the Church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world. And this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, he says, it is because of this very sin that there must be human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. Now you may think your politicians are unwise in their decision making. Some, some in here may come from countries that are hostile towards their citizens and especially towards Christians You heard Brian pray for the country of Somalia today, an oppressive, wicked government that, that abuses her people. What do we do then, for, for the Christians that are living in Somalia, for the Christians that live in China, for the Christians in America, like what? How do we live? What do we do even though Jesus legitimizes human government? How do we live when it's corrupt? Well, keep in mind that both apostles Paul and Peter reaffirm Jesus' teaching. Paul, in Romans 13 says, "Let every person be subject." To the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter says, uh, "Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good." Now, keep in mind, both Paul and Peter wrote those words, and when they were under the tyrannical rule of Nero, right, who went on a rampage against Christians, and yet still they wrote to the churches, calling on them to be subject to those in authority. Don't revolt. Don't don't seek to to bring the system down. Don't burn it to the ground and leave ashes only. He says, no, we're subject to it. However, we also see, though, that ultimately we are responsible to God before man. So number two, we're to be subject to governing authorities as much as Scripture allows. Be subject to governing authorities as much as Scripture (coughs) allows. Jesus said, pay Caesar with what already belongs to him. Give to God what belongs to God, that we're made in the image of God, Genesis 1 would say. His image is stamped upon us, which means that our hearts and our souls, our lives, belong to him first and foremost. So though we are called to be subject to the governing authorities, we, we do resist when those in authority demand that we act in a way that would violate God's word. Right, so in Acts 4 and 5, the governing body arrested some of the disciples that were preaching the gospel. They stand before them, and the government, governing body commands them, gives them a direct order. Stop what you're doing. What did do the disciples do? They resisted that order. They didn't obey that order. They won't stop. God has commanded us, they say, commissioned us to make disciples, and his word comes first. Now, they didn't seek to overthrow the governing body. They didn't seek to bring a revolution and tear it all to the ground. They said, Listen, we'll be subject to you unless you call us to do something that violates God's word. Right? So they lived openly and publicly in their in their refusal to obey, and they suffered the consequences because of it. Today, Christians all across the globe are being persecuted by those in authority for preaching the gospel, and they're suffering greatly because of it. As believers, we submit first and foremost to the one whose image we bear. That comes first and foremost. Which leads in lastly to number three: our ultimate allegiance is to the one whose image we bear, All right? Our ultimate allegiance is to the one whose image we bear. We belong to him because not only has he created us, but for those who are saved by God's grace, God has redeemed us and he's purchased us with the price of his own life, All right? 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, we belong to God. And Jesus has, with one simple statement, put everything in its proper place. He put Caesar in his place, God has, and God has been highly exalted. We understand our place before him then and before others. And so, practically, what's this look like then in our lives? Few minutes here. I believe wholeheartedly that we should as Christians be engaged in civic life. We should absolutely care about the decision, decisions that those in authority are making, and we should speak the truth of God's word into the public arena. Christians need to have that voice. And honestly, the church needs to reclaim the voice that it once had. We absolutely need to be a part of that conversation. Now, really practically, there's midterm elections coming up in just a couple days right? I'm going to be glad when it's over because I'm tired of the text messages I'm getting uh, from all the candidates. But listen, I'm going to say this. You should vote, right? You should absolutely vote. Be engaged in the process. To not vote is irresponsible at best. Be engaged. But at the same time, remember this, that your Savior is not who sits in the Oval Office, or who lives in the governor's mansion, or who has seats in Congress, That is not where your hope is. And far too many in the church have gotten too sucked in to the world of politics where that is what defines them and that's what identifies them, right? There are many Christians who know everyone who's running on a political ticket and what they stand for, but they know nothing about what Christ has commanded them to do and be, right? Sadly, many churches today even in the West especially are known more for what political party they support rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ to shame, See, people who spend hours watching Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or reading article after article after article but spend no time in God's word learning who they are and who their God is. Right? This is in living contrary. This is living out of balance what Jesus is teaching here. Right? He's legitimized human government. Yes, we're subject to it. But don't forget whose image you bear. Right? This, is living, this is living in like the world when we live that way. We, we live like citizens of the world when we live that way rather than citizens of heaven. And so where do we need to adjust? This is what God's word should do to us, right? As we open it up, it's going to reveal areas. Where do I need to adjust? Where do I need to repent? Where do I, where do I need to confess? Where has my life gotten out of sync with Christ's call on, on our lives? And so let's let God's word shape you. Let, let, let the spirit of God convict you. And never forget, we are to live as citizens of heaven which will result in good for those around us. When, when that's the proper order, that's when we shine as lights in the midst of brokenness and darkness. So let's make sure our priorities and our allegiances are in proper order today. Let's pray. God, help us. God, help us to, to see you as, as king. And I know in our context here, we, we, we don't have a lot of context for what kings are. Uh, but, but God, I know we, we understand the concept of it. So, so God, however you as your spirit impresses that reality into our life, help us to know that you are ultimately in authority over our life. That there, there's no one that's more supreme. There's no greater treasure than you. But God, then help us and as we, we, as we reorder our lives, as we make sure that we are living in proper balance as citizens of heaven, then may that then translate into how we live as, as earthly citizens as well, in, in specific countries, specific nations. And so, God, help us to, to be subject to those in, in, in authority over us. Help us, as your word says, to pray for those who are in uh, positions of authority and power. God, so, so may, we, may, may you help us not to be a people who, uh, through social media or through, uh, through just uh, anonymity, uh, just cast stones and speak vile words, God, that are not in line with how you've called us to speak and be. God, God help us to be salt and light. Help us to speak with grace and truth, but with love and, and mercy as well. God, may we be engaged in, in civic life as much as you can allow us to be. God, may, may the church reclaim its voice in our nation again. God, we pray for, for those in our, our church that come from different nations, different countries that, that say we have no voice, that Christians are oppressed and persecuted, and we have to live secretly. God, I pray that you would sustain them and give them grace upon grace. God, help them to submit as as best they can, but also help them and give them courage to obey your word, even though it will bring suffering. So, God, these are weighty things that we need your spirit to do in us. So, God, help us, God, as we submit to you as King of kings and Lord of lords.